And so that, that belief that photography is not an art form, that it is only a record of what is out there, is really putting blinders on as far as I'm concerned. I spend... Pro- I mean, this photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, oh my heavens, today do we have a treat. Today we're talking with Art Wolf, one of the icons of American photography, somebody whose name is as well recognized as any name that's ever been out there. Art has been, for the last oh, 40 years, 50 years, one of the leading photographers of nature, of wildlife, of landscape. His work has been all over the place. It's won National Outdoor Book Awards, Nautilus Gold Awards. He's been Photographer of the Year. He is an honorary fellow of the Royal Photographic Society. His work's even been on two postage stamps. It is a career absolutely celebrating photography and and the relationship to the natural world. Art, good morning. Good afternoon. How are you, sir? Great, Scott. Thanks for having me today. It is my pleasure. There is an awful lot that I want to talk about today, but I, I feel like one of the things that we need to you know, get out there, of course, is how you got started. I know from reading the information on the web that both of your parents were artists out in the Seattle area. You got a BFA from the University of Washington. But within four years of graduation, you had work in National Geographic and your first photo book was out. That is extraordinary. So tell me about the 12-year-old Art Wolf with an Instamatic and a flash cube or how this whole magnificent career got started. Actually, I was 13. So you were really close. I was up in the Bowron Lakes, which are a chain of lakes up in British Columbia. I had a brownie fiesta. And I can remember we were canoeing. I was part of a YMCA group of young people that were doing this 80-mile canoe uh, portage. And and it was a grand adventure. I always was the kid that loved being out in the wild. And But, but back to the camera, I had this brownie fiesta, and we were floating in the lake in a canoe, and there was a moose, a female moose that was eating submergent vegetation. And every time it stuck its head under the water to grab some vegetation, we would paddle up closer. And I can remember almost having the front of our canoe bump the backside of the moose. And I was taking pictures with the Fiesta. And those, in fact, were the first photos. But it was such an instant hook for me. I couldn't wait to get that film back and look at those photos. And yeah, I never have looked back, but I always remember that moment. And over the years, I was always the school artist. I painted, I drew. My mother was a commercial artist. My father was a Navy photographer during World War II. So his love of photography, her love of drawing kind of combined in me. And I went through the University of Washington, ultimately got degrees in painting, fine art education. But I was also a climber, and on weekends, I'd be up in the mountains climbing, and now my father had given me an old 4 by 5 speed graphic, and I was starting to photograph black and white photos of the North Cascades, Mount Rainier, and, and you get the idea. And by the way, and by the time I graduated from the U in 1977, my allegiances had shifted from painting to photography. That's how it started. 
And and what facilitated that change of allegiance? Was it just the thrill of being outside and and the difficulty of carrying canvas and paints outside? Or what, what was the motivation there? The easy answer is I am very much somebody always on the move. I have always an agenda. The photographic medium really situated my energy level and lack of concentration. I mean, if you sit in front of a blank canvas and you have to conjure up an original composition, that takes a lot more energy than snapping original compositions for the photographic medium. But more precisely, as I look back right now, it kept me out there in the wilds and more so than painting would have done. So, And back then, back in the mid-70s, the 35 millimeter camera really started coming into its own. Prior to that, there were large Mm -hmm. format, much more static and stoic, but the 35 was a camera you could pack away in a backpack and get into the mountains, get into the Amazon, get into the Himalayas. And so it was the perfect mergence of energy, age, interest and technology. And I look back and I compare notes with my colleagues like Franz Lanting, who started virtually the same time, and Jim Brandenburg, who was a little earlier than I, and Galen Rowell, all of us really embraced the 35 millimeter camera. And what is it in nature photography you were trying to capture or reveal? Really early on, I was just trying to stay away from being an adult and working in an office. So <laughs> since I love since I love nature, and there weren't that many people out there doing it, I could count all the the well known people on one hand, and we all knew each other. But I never really thought of it as a viable income or occupation. I just thought this will stay the time I'll have to become an adult and get in an office and put on a suit. So the self definition of photographer that came about just sort of accidentally or were you or were you declaring yourself as a photographer back then i was declaring myself as a photographer and fortunately living in seattle it was the home of rei Mm -hmm. and eddie bauer and a half a dozen other outdoor recreational stores and because i had the background in painting i knew how to matte and frame a painting and so the photographs that I were t- was taking at the time, I started matting and framing and talking my way onto the walls of these stores. I got galleries in these stores, and I started selling photos of wood ducks and mountains and everything else. And that really gave me the confidence and eventually the competence to actually move forward. I created, in other words, an occupation that I really didn't know too many people that were actually doing at the time. Oh, that that is wonderful. Tell me the story of, of the very early in your career appearance in National Geographic. Well, it's funny because uh, one of my climbing friends who was nine years older than I, I always looked up to him. He was a mentor. He loved taking pictures as well, but he was dating a woman who had recently moved to Seattle from D.C., and she actually was an assistant to one of the editors at National Geographic. And so she called Mary Smith, one of the really famous editors at the time, and got me an appointment. Of course, I went back and sold myself to her. And I was young and cocky. And I wasn't cocky. I was just confident. I I don't actually think of myself as being cocky, but I was really fairly confident that I could deliver what I was promising her. And she just sired me. And it led to a couple stories in National Geographic, 
a book in the Soviet Union on uh, biospheres. But I eventually left the magazine fairly early on because anything we got published, the National Geographic owned and they owned the copyright. Mm -hmm. And I and coming up through the world of art, that just seemed like an extraordinary thing to give up your copyright. And so I eventually left the magazine, started working for Smithsonian Natural History, half a dozen other magazines. Audubon was a great magazine. But my interest and love really was towards fine art books. And that's really, I shifted from the magazine world to fine art books because as an artist, I just love the tactile feel of really fine paper and the way a book is bound and just the craft and craftsmanship of producing these fine art archives. Where a magazine would be widely seen, a book lasts more than a month on the stands. And that was critical to me as well. I understand completely. And and it, this brings up one of the distinctions I want to talk to you about, and that is nature photography, documentary photography, and fine art. How do you see them being different? How do you see them blending? Well, you know, it's funny that you asked that because back in 19, let's see, I think it was 1986, I did a book called Migrations. Uh-huh. And it was a book inspired by the work of M.C. Escher, this uh, Dutch artist that lived in the late 1800s. And he did this amazing work using positive negative space and shapes and really uh, delighting his audience with how clever his brain was. And I thought if I could ever photographically emulate some of his work, I would try. And eventually I did. And it came out as this book on swarms of insects, flocks of birds, birds of mammals, it was all about patterns. Mm-hmm. Now, this was at a time that we were all shooting film. And yet I was aware that you could scan, digitally scan a film and alter its content. And so in 30% of the 100 photos in the book, if there was one bird in a flock that was changing its head or moving its head differently than all the other ones, I could digitally rotate that head back to complete the pattern. And in a couple of the photos, like the cover of the book, we cut off some grass and there was a herd of zebras, probably 900 zebras waiting to cross the Mara River in East Africa. And I basically digitally put in individuals from other parts of the herd, never just copying one animal. We actually called it a digital illustration because we had no other way of identifying what we were doing. We, we didn't call it a photograph. We called it a digital illustration and cited M.C. Escher as the inspiration, a Dutch artist, and therefore we thought maybe this was appropriate to introduce this new technology. And my God, it won international design awards and international condemnation. So never was the split between the natural history and the art world more defined than in that book that was like a lightning rod on a world scale. So when you asked me if I do sandwiches and all that, I said 90% of what I do, I don't. Right. But in certain circumstances, when it's like paying homage to an artist, we did. There is a great line from uh, a writer named Tim O'Brien, which is coming to mind now. He's writing about war stories, but he says, your allegiance is to the hard and exact truth as it seemed. And I've always held on to that line because the truth of the image may not be what you're actually seeing. It may be what it seems. Absolutely correct. And 
people that held to the belief that photography was absolute, unequivocally real failed to know how much that even a war correspondent can include or exclude in this frame something that changes the inherent honesty of the image. And the finest documentarians understood that point. The angle of which you shoot a subject, the type of film you choose to record it, all of that changes the inherent content of the image. And even in our own human eyes, we record color differently than one another. And so that that belief that photography is not an art form, that it is only a record of what is out there, is really putting blinders on as far as I'm concerned. I spend, pro- I mean, when it's not COVID influenced, I'm generally on the road seven to eight months out of the year, going all over the earth, photographing everything from faith in cultures and, uh, and the variety of different belief systems that people are involved with to wildlife, to landscapes. And all that I'm shooting is as real as I can make it. And so I believe in the integrity of photography. And unless you state otherwise, I'm going to believe what I'm seeing. I mean, I, with the caveat that I know the photographer, she or he has put his own slant on things, but I'm not one that would go and put, you know, uh, a monkey on an elephant because I digitally could do it. I, I have never crossed that line. And mm-hmm. uh, Migrations was the only book where I actually included illustrations like that because really my history and my reputation is really based on when you see an image, you want to know that Snow Leopard was actually on that ledge. Otherwise, it all becomes fantasy. Absolutely. And I think it's instructive that you also called them something different. You called them illustrations. You called them digital illustrations. Digital illustrations. So you were signaling to anybody that was paying the least bit of attention that this was something more than just what what happened to wind up in the viewfinder. I do bear the responsibility of the confusion because the captions were really natural history captions. But we did, in fact, state in the very introduction that this book contains digital illustrations. But our, our harshest critics said, well, people don't read. You know, it's like, well, if that's your biggest response... You have no argument. No, I know. And and I'm with you because I want to believe what I'm looking at. But then again, I also want to believe a novel. You know, there's this thing called the willing suspension of disbelief. I know that no crazy guy got in a boat and chased an albino whale and then everybody dies at the end, except for one guy. But I want to believe it when I'm reading it. You know, I I want to be invested in it. So I'm, I'm looking at a photograph and I want to believe what I'm seeing is real. And yep. The sticky part gets to be, what do you mean by real? You know, the emotional response, the aesthetic response. And if you've declared this is a digital illustration, you've changed the focus of of what real is. Now you're talking about aesthetics. You're not talking about evidence for a court. But I want to fast forward a little bit because you mentioned COVID a second ago. And one of the things I learned from your website is that the isolation has led you to create this new series of tutorials and stuff called Pathways to Creativity. I have had the good fortune to watch the first episode. And there, there were a couple of things in there that really struck me. And, and, and I want to hear you talk a little bit more about. 
in, in a very early section, you're talking about photographing some snow on branches outside a Shinto shrine in Japan. And you talk in the video about how that entire scene was just sort of serendipity. You were walking by the color, the, the orange red color of the shrine was not something you would normally be attracted to. That, that's my first question. What, what attracts you as a photographer? What shapes, what images, what colors, what leaps out of the world and says, Art, come here. You know, it's interesting. Right now, I'm teaching a series of workshops called Photography as Art. And we're going into really degraded environments. A couple of years ago, we went into a prison in Atlanta that was abandoned. We had to hire a SWAT member to protect us from drug dealers. But we're finding beauty in degraded environments. And so mm -hmm. the answer, the, the short answer is virtually everything intrigues me at this point. And I've had a lot of art history and I've studied artists. And as they've aged, their interest has broadened and their brains and their work becomes more abstract. And so rather than becoming more rigid and more focused, I'm broadening my interest and keep on broadening it. I used to say I don't photograph weddings, graduations, or bar mitzvahs. But in fact, I just <laughs> photographed a bar mitzvah in Israel last year because I'm doing this book on faith. And uh -huh. so I, there's very few things that I that don't catch my eye anymore. I used to be that guy that would walk through a fine art museum and say, oh, shit, that's that's abstract. I could have done that. And I would never say that now because I was just ignorant, ignorant and ignorant. But I have I'm mm -hmm. no longer that way. And so I take on these subjects that I may not be familiar with or understand. But by the time I take it on and really dive in, then I've educated myself. And I think that's true for most of us. Until you study something, whether it's cooking or dance or poetry or whatever it may be, you only know it on a surface level. But as you get into it, an appreciation develops. And certainly that's what's true with uh, many of my subjects. Oh, that's, that is very cool. In, in the same discussion of that same image on your video, you show us the image as it was shot, and then you talk about cropping as, as a way to tweak the composition, to say, you know, I, I got too much going on in this corner. I want to simplify it. I want to focus it a little bit. How much of, how much of your work is sort of rediscovering images in post-production based on, based on a really good first draft, let's say, and how much effort do, do you think really goes into that original capture? Okay, so I started teaching right after graduating from the University of Washington. So I've been teaching now for well over 40 years. If I graduated uh -huh. in 77, and this is 2020, you do the math. I, I'd have to take my shoe off to count it all up. But I <laughs> love teaching. And so when I'm teaching, I'm asking people not to crop after the fact, but to crop as they frame the shot. Otherwise, right. just cropping for the sake of cropping is a slower way of learning. Having said that, there are certain photos and limitations about how close you can get to the subject. And if I have to then crop after the fact, then I'm going to do all the things necessary to maximize the quality of the image with lowering the ISO and stabilizing it and tripod and all those yep. kind of things go inherently into making a finer, stronger image. Now, in that series you're talking about, I don't know if I cropped so much as relocated and moved in. 
and zoomed right, in. Right. Yeah. Zoom, yeah that, that's what I meant. Zoomed in. Yeah, I zoomed in. I, I don't mind cropping when you have to, but I'd rather have people crop for their eye and their intellect to size up an image, not to discover it after the fact. Now, the second part of that, though, is I'm using now a software called Topaz Sharpening, and I am rediscovering old slides that I can sharpen and remove the noise and rebirth an old image that was languishing in the files. And I love that. I'm also much better in Lightroom on taking an old color slide and opening up the shadow. I mean, first scanning it properly and then opening up the shadows and working these images that have just sat there quietly in the dark in a cabinet for 20 years and suddenly they've got their day in the sun. So I love those kind of stories. Well, say more about this, because I know as as a writer, I look at something I wrote and maybe even you know published and got a good reception back in the early 80s. And I'm thinking, oh, I want all of those sentences back. They are not who I am anymore. And I can do better than this. D- do you find yourself looking at your work from 20 years ago and rediscovering a voice, correcting a voice, refining a voice? What, what is it like to re-edit yourself? I love it. I absolutely love it. Having said that, though, most of what I shot in my first part of my career, I have tossed. You know, I haven't thrown away the things that are incredibly important are cultures and things that have forever changed. And so mm-hmm. I traveled early and often and got into remote areas where eventually people followed and Western civilization creeped in. So those photos that go back 30 years are really important. And when you're out there 30 years ago and it's the present, you don't necessarily have the smarts to realize that this work that I'm doing right now becomes a vital record of what was once. Now I do, but back then you're just trying to, you know, keep the leeches from biting you. And Uh so those are the photos. Many of those are the photos that I'm really seeking out in the archive. Much of the landscapes and the wildlife, my God, we were using ISOs of 25, meaning a very slow Mm -hmm. photo. I I often said the animal had to be dead before you could get a sharp shot of it. And today, the technology that keeps evolving is so much better than what we could have done and optically better than we could have done in the early part of the... It's a balance between access and what was once that no longer exists And now technology that can allow us to take photos that we couldn't even have done 10 years ago. And what I'm talking about then is high ISOs that can allow us to stop the motion or pick up the heavens or all those kind of things, really. And and in many ways, it's such a blessing because, and since you're a writer, you'd understand it, the worst thing that could confront a photographer is something analogous to writer's block, where you've shot everything you've ever wanted to shoot and you have no inspiration and desire, and you just basically put the camera away and start something new. Yeah, th- that is a, a kind of horror that I think any artist faces, that, that finally you get to the point where you say, I have nothing to add to the building of this day. And and that hurts. You know, that, that that's the cause of some despair. But I think we all find ways to work through it. At least most of us do. Well, I do. I have, by the way, I'm a living model of that simply because 
I have broadened my interest and I have so much to do and not enough time to do it. So I, I see other people that so were so interested, not in just photographing birds, but particularly ducks. And after they shot every duck that actually existed in North America, every species, they basically gave up and moved on to some other interest. And so mm -hmm. I often cite that in my own mind of, ne of never doing that, always being interested. I mean, I think curiosity is a huge part of what motivates me. And then that challenge of sharing that with my audience and trying to tap into my audience's emotions. All those are integral in keeping me out all the time and traveling as much as anybody I have ever, ever met. I do agree with you there. I think curiosity is, is the very first thing that should go in our camera bag long before any body or lens. I want to ask you about a couple of specific photographs. If you could just tell me the stories behind them, because a couple of these, I, I looked at them as I was going through your website. I think I know this image. I've known this image for years. Others of them were brand fresh to me. And I'm just as jealous and humbled as hell, you know, looking at them. But on your Instagram feed, I believe it is, you have the picture of the two Komodo dragons, the one with its tongue uh, sticking out. I really hope you weren't that close <laughs> to that animal. You know, that was this year. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Tell me the story of that image. Okay. So a friend of mine in Tokyo sent to me a, an extending pole, something that I could get on a plane in a duffel, but it could extend out about 12 feet. And so I had another friend here in Seattle, went to a hardware store and put a rolling wheel, you know, the kind of wheels that you would find under a chair. You know, just exactly uh -huh. like that. One of the office chairs that's got a, a, a wheel that will go any direction. And he bolted that to the pole. And then on the other side, we were able to fix a tripod head. And then I put my camera and a wide angle on that. And so long story short, I was able to use an advancer and roll my wide angle up under some of these Komodos and be able to shoot intimate wide-angle shots without putting myself at harm's way. Historically, we thought Komodo dragons were, had an enzyme in their saliva that could cause a lot of damage. But now, in the last couple of years, they realized their bite is actually a poison, just like a snake's. And so you definitely do not want to get bit by a Komodo dragon because a uh, Chinese man did last year, and they had to cut his leg off to save his life. And so oh very much motivated by staying healthy. But once I get that idea in my mind, I have to go for it. And I'm working on a book on international wildlife that will come out in a couple of years. And, of course, the largest lizard on the planet. Well, actually, the Nile crocodile is bigger, but uh, land lizard is the Komodo dragon. And they're very impressive animals. It seems to me the stereotypic way to get that shot would be just to slap on a 500 millimeter lens and, and go for it. Why were you after the wide angle there? What aesthetic was driving the need for that shot? Wouldn't it be a hollow victory to, after seven or eight years of working on a book, come out with a book that's filled with images that looks like everybody else's? And mm -hmm. so I'm always trying and pushing myself to capture wildlife in a modern era that doesn't look dated, doesn't look like it's something that was predictable. 
And to that end, drones and getting underwater and trying just unusual views. I lead tours up to Katmai National Park every year. And the bears know me at this point, and I know them, and I know where they fish. And so I can lay on my belly 12 feet away as a bear, full-grown 2,000-pound brown bear is running at me and diving at the last second, plunging into a pool of salmon. And I know full well the bear is not aggressive towards me. And so you get these shots of the bear flying through the water as if it's about to pounce on you. And it's startling to look at. It's emotional to look at. And yet it's safe for me to do that. I am looking at that image that you're talking about right now. And I confess, I did not see the salmon until you mentioned that. I was riveted on the charging bear and and what that might mean. That that's completely redone the picture and, and made it actually much more interesting. I think now now that you've called that out as well. I read an article in I think it was Harper's Magazine a hundred years ago about nature photography. And whoever wrote the article was talking about yes, you see you know the the dramatic this, the dramatic that. What you don't see are the four days I sat in a tent waiting for that. You don't see the patience. Talk to me about patience in in your world. How how much time does it take for these images to finally reveal themselves to you? So there are a lot of trips that I plan with a a preconceived idea of what I want to get. I really work that way. In fact, I make a list of everything I'm going to do the following day. I'm totally a list maker. But I also keep my mind open enough for the serendipity because some a lot of times the best shots are the ones you could not have predicted a second before. And so it's a blend between having that goal of getting the shots that you really want to get, but also opening up your imagination for the unexpected. I am not by any means a patient person. I only have once spent, oh, probably about 40 hours in a tent by myself outside a gray wolf den up in Alaska. And, you know, it was excruciating for me because I like to move. So most of my shooting, I'm always moving. If it's not happening now, move on. There's something down the road. But I also am dogged. I spent three weeks and a lot of money hiring 26 porters and going into K2 in uh, the Pakistan Karakoram range to get one shot for a book I was working on. So if that's patience, then I'm very patient. But it's not exactly the patience people think about. I am never going to be the person that sits and documents the 12-month life cycle of a marmot. You know, that's for other people to do. Oh well, and and God bless them for doing that work too. But I but I agree. Oh yeah, you. But you you are you are not an unintentional photographer. I mean, I'm looking at pictures of you taking pictures. I'm listening to you you know talk on the web. You are very well planned and very intentional in what you do, and yet your work has a spontaneity to it. Is that simply you know the balance between expertise and occasion? Talk to me about planning. Talk to you know talk to me about intent. My staff could tell you how many books I've done. I would never know. More than more than sixty. Uh, I think it's around one hundred and twenty. <laughs> oh my! You got to update. You have to update your website. <laughs> well, 
Well, we're call, we're calling individual <laughs> books, children's books, foreign yep. imprints, and all that. Apparently, there's 120 something. I don't oh, give my. a rat's ass, honestly, because I'm not. I don't know how many countries I've traveled to. I have no mm-hmm. idea exactly how many days or miles I travel. I am not that kind of. I I don't care. But when I take on a book project, and now I've got seven under contract. I have to appropriate, and it's almost like a military assault. I look at the calendar year and the various subjects I'm working on, and you have to figure out, okay, if it's a book on faith, then there's going to be ceremonies, and you're going to be there that day across the world. For instance, next, I think it's June, I'm going to Delhi to photograph the biggest gathering of Muslims in Southeast Asia at a giant mosque. And I can't be there the day after I've got to be on the day. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, but that might coincide with a migration that's happening in East Africa for another book and so forth and so on. So you kind of divide up the year and it's all basically until COVID hit, I had an entire full year planned plus workshops. And now we've had a, a push them into 21. So what was already a very busy 21 is going to be no time at home whatsoever. But you know what? It's a lifestyle I've chosen. I have no regrets. I thrive on the energy of creating things, and I'm a pretty happy camper about that. But yeah, I am extraordinarily organized. Might say type A. (laughs) (laughs) You tell a story on your website about taking pictures of a woman in Africa wearing this headdress with giant horns on it. And I was struck by a couple things. Number one, just the weight of your gear doing that. I mean, you have a big tripod and you, you've got a big camera and a big lens going on. And yet here comes this shot. So you know, talk to me a little bit about what you're packing along on a normal trip, but also, and, and perhaps more importantly, that was not you know a planned shoot. You, know, you just happened to see her. As I understand the story, you asked permission to take pictures and then you started posing her in different relationships to the hallway that, that she was standing in. So talk to me about how you get ready. And I, you know, I'm, I am talking gear here. I'm not so much brand names, but you're going to go out walking someplace. What have you got on your back? But then what's your relationship to posing and lighting and recreating what you're seeing? Okay. So that's a multifaceted question. Number one is I carry my own cameras. So I've got two camera bodies in the backpack. I've got a now I've got a 1 to 400 and a 24 to 70. And those two lenses from 24 wide to a 400, it's a pretty good range. And I'm only missing what? Between 70 and 100. And I've got feet to move me closer or back. So there's no liability. There's no missing much with that. And so I have that. I've got a package of flashcards. I've got extra batteries, got a cable release. So it's it's fine. And then I've got a Gitzo tripod and a Kirk head on that. And now I believe the shot you're referring to, the woman probably has a pipe in her mouth. Is that the yes. series? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I was doing a Travels to the Edge PBS TV series back then. And we were in Mali, Africa, Sub-Saharan Mali, Africa. Well, actually, Sub-Saharan meaning it's on the southern reaches of the Sahara Desert. Right, and, right. Uh, this woman was standing there kind of smiling at me and watching us work with other people. 
And though I could not speak her language, body language is huge. And so you're smiling, you show up the camera, you ask quizzically without words, can I photograph you? And they can either smile and walk away or smile and come forward. And that's what she did. And then as I was photographing it, then I would motion her left or right and just fine tune that picture, which I always am doing. And so Mm -hmm. I have no hesitation whatsoever on moving somebody to a better location as long as it's not, you know, asking too much. And it's always nonverbal. It's always smiling and just being really as open as you can be to somebody. And I, I've always maintained whether you're in New York City or in the farthest reaches of the Amazon, people are people and they can size up well-intentioned people or people that they don't trust. And my role is to, to be as open as I can be and always flashing the smile. And I rarely come away with somebody that is refusing a photo or even moving 10 feet for me. Uh, It it just is inherently part of human nature to accommodate. And that's how I get my shots. Wonderful. Slightly different topic. Tell me about the Human Canvas Project. Well, you know, I uh, just alluded to the fact I was doing this PBS TV series called Travels the Edge. Mm -hmm. I did it for two years. And it it ended in 2008 when the world economy crashed and the funding for that show ran out. And so suddenly I've got time on my hands. And in the back of my mind, I always thought, you know, what I've never tackled was the human form. I've always in my adult life been in remote cultures where clothing and nudity is something that's very common And therefore, I hardly even notice. But the human form was something I wanted to uh, challenge myself with. And could I do it that wasn't derivative of somebody else's work? And so I struggled with that. I originally was going to do a book called The Sensuous Earth, where I photographed parts of human bodies that looked like landscapes and then went into the sand dunes, went into the lava fields, into the snow and photographed forms that look like human shapes. But as I was working on that and I started showing people, somebody would go, oh yeah, that looks just like so-and-so's work. And I would look it up and yep, there's somebody that had already done part of that. They hadn't done the landscape part, but they did the human form. So I stopped the project and started rethinking the whole project. And then I thought, well, you know, I've been around a lot of tribes where They adorn themselves during ceremonial occasions and with designs that are beautiful lines or textures or patterns. And I thought, well, why not bring that into a modern world and try that with models in Seattle? And so I've never worked in studios with indoor lights or any of that. And so that began what became a 10-year project. Wow. I had over 100 individuals. I would say most of them were between 20 and 30, where nudity was very casual for them. All different races, genders, sexualities. It was just a microcosm of the world, but they all had a great time. And we created some beautiful, beautiful work. There is some extraordinary work here. I'm looking right now at, at the stars in the circle. I don't, I don't know if this one has a title or not. But it reminds me of a Matisse. Yes, abs- that, that's where I was going. I was, I was going to say, absolutely. So it's a Matisse in, in that tradition. Yeah. Was that a, was that a difficult shot? 
You know, no, because we, I had about 13 people at any one time as assistants because we had as many as 30 individuals. So it was no easy matter to, we had to rent a studio space. We had to rent dryers, big heaters that would heat people up like stoves that generate an abundance of heat because often I would clay people in wet clay and I don't care how hot it was for us. They were freezing when you put wet clay on the human body. And until Mm -hmm. it dries two hours later, they're shivering uncontrollably. So, and then uh, you can imagine if we did that to a lot of individuals, the mess and cleanup afterwards, we'd start at 7 a.m. and finish around 7 p.m. And I would do that when I was younger and more physically able, we would do one on a Saturday and one on a Sunday and then rest it for two months as I was conjuring up new ideas. And then we'd bring everybody together. I'd rent a flat, big strobes and everything else, rent the studio, find the, the participants and bring in the assistants. So it was very much me drawing the idea, conceiving of the concepts. But then I would have people that would help me with the lighting and things like that. I had three spray paint artists that would spray paint bodies, either white or black. And then I would hand paint on each individual, the designs that I had done in little sketches prior to that. And and is this all fully realized in your head before you go to the studio or is a lot of this? Hey, yeah, it is. Okay. So it had to be because. You cannot have at any one time 10 models standing there and 13 people standing there, and then they're going to say, What next? And I go, What? Yeah, you can't do that. You got to say, This is what we're doing next. This is what we're doing next. And keep them moving and pretend like you knew what you're doing. But what you just asked, there is also this serendipity of like the one you alluded to of the Matisse. I had a a slightly different idea. And then one of the models said, well, what if we did this? And I said, perfect, let's do it. And I always would reward models for suggesting this or that. I never, ever overruled somebody like, no, it's my ideas. I'm the artist. No, I always saw it as a collaborative effort. And if people are willing and able to chime in and give me ideas, then everybody's happier for it because they feel that they're not just, you know, so many pounds of meat. Yep. You know, they've got a brain, they've got intellect. I had everybody from surgeons to weight trainers that were models. And so it was all good for me. I mean, it just is the way I've worked all my life is to find happiness with people in the field or whatever it may be. It's just always maintaining a positive attitude has worked well for me over the years. Well, and certainly it's worked well for you over the years. This is extraordinary work. I want to return as, as sort of a last question to the the tutorials, the pathways to creativity. What, what do you see as, as being sort of the main thrust of the series other than better photography? Is it imagination? Is it curiosity? Is it composition? Where do you think the most wisdom can be passed along? You know, I think it's all about creativity. And so I did 13 episodes starting in February because I saw the handwriting on the wall that we were going to be locked down and people weren't going to be traveling. And so I started really fast creating this series of tutorials. And I created 14. I'm well on my way on getting the second 14 done. And then I'm done because 
virtually in those 28 episodes, everything I've ever learned or taught is encapsulated in these tutorials. And the idea is to teach everything I possibly have passed through my brain in the last 40 years. And I, I think it delivers on multiple levels, but creativity and excitement and all of that. And it, let's put another word on it. It's passion. If I'm furthering somebody's passion in being creative, then they're a happier, healthier, longer lived human beings. Because as I studied art history and really was centric towards the Impressionist period in the late 1800s, almost all the Impressionist painters outlived their compatriots by almost double. Monet, Claude Monet, he lived well into his mid-80s at a time when average person was dying at 48. So I think whether you are into writing or cooking or dance or poetry or whatever it may be, that creative part of your brain nurses the soul and makes you a healthier person. I think that is very, very wise, very wise advice. Thank you, sir. This has been extraordinary. I've enjoyed every moment. Thank you, Scott. You've asked great questions. <laughs> Thank you. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.